Bibles and turn to Psalm 32. What I say? Exodus 32. <laughs> Exodus 32. And we'll be in verses 15 through 35. <clears throat> Exodus 32. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire, ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let all who have gold take it off. They gave it to me, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. When Moses saw that the people of Israel had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and the companion and his neighbor. The sons of Levi did according to the words of Moses. That day, about 3,000 men of Israel fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing on you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, <coughs> You have sinned a great sin, and I will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, 
Please blot me out of the book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague upon the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. Lord, these words are sobering to us because we realize that if your people who in the most literal way we can think of walked with you fell and sinned in this great way Lord then we know we are not immune from such radical sin So, Lord, we pray that you would first keep us from such sin. That we would be empowered by your Holy Spirit and with a holy resolve follow you and your way and your truth, Lord that we might not be led astray like the people of Israel here. So, Lord, as we see this passage given to us here, and we also see within it, Lord, the proto-example of a intercessory work, an atoning intercession, Lord, we thank you for the great intercession and atoning work that you have given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. May we not take it for granted, Lord, but rest in it. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Moses is about to descend upon the people, and these people have heard from the Lord. They have seen the Lord move and act. They have partaken in the miracles that the Lord has provided and they have enjoyed the blessings of God's continued provision for them in a land that was largely devoid of the things they needed for life. And this isn't just an episode or instance of life will find a way, but It is an instance of God provides the way. And in God providing the way, He has led them to this place where they have received the Ten Commandments. And at this point, they have received them verbally. Remember, God has given them to Moses, and Moses came down the mountain and gave the instruction about the law of God to the people of Israel. And then he went back up and God, apparently during that time when Moses was away from him and with the people, had written the tablets of stone, these two tablets on the front and the back, probably copies of each other. 
and then given them to Moses along with all of the instruction in the building of the tabernacle. <clears throat> and all the while these people are down at the base of the mountain and they're grumbling, they're complaining, gossiping about whether Moses had gone dead or slandering maybe perhaps his, his own name, but whatever the case may be, they are with hearts set against the Lord, set upon following their own devices, and they turn to the worship of things they were familiar with, which are the idols of Egypt. And Aaron is, I mean, part of me wants to say duped into this, but he's much more complicit than just being fooled and duped into it. Instead, we find here, he tells us basically what happened, <coughs> at least in his own heart. But before we get to what is going on in Aaron's heart, we have a word of testimony about now Joshua being up on the mountain with Moses, not right there perhaps in God's presence, but somewhere on the mountain. And as Moses comes down the mountain with these Ten Commandments, Joshua hears the noise and misinterprets it as a sound of war. Now, the Israelites, even though they were enslaved have, and have been freed from their slavery, aren't immune to war already. They've already had a couple of skirmishes. And so, <clears throat> it wouldn't be at all odd for somebody to have attacked while Moses and Joshua are up on the mountain. And so they come down and Moses rightly hears, though, that this isn't the threat of war, either defeat or victory, but it's the sound of riot or a raucous <laughs> affair, a party, the sound of singing. And he came near the camp and he saw the calf and he saw the singing. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 9 gives us a little more information about this particular event. In Deuteronomy 9, uh, remember Deuteronomy is written <coughs> by Moses just before Israel goes across the river under the leading of Joshua into the promised land. Moses wasn't allowed to go, so this is the reiteration of the law and everything that had taken place. So as Moses records this instance, he says furthermore in verse 13, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. But I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets in the cov of covenant were in my hand. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them <coughs> before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord forty days, and I ate neither bread 
nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and the hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you, so he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was angry with Aaron, that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at that time. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, burned it with fire, crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust, and I threw it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. These rebellious people against the Lord have sinned in such a way that Moses, when he comes down from the mountain, you'll notice both of these passages indicate that what he did is he took the Ten Commandments that he had on the tablets of stone and he smashed them. He broke them at the foot of the mountain. These very sacred stones that were written upon by the very hand of God himself were destroyed by Moses. Now, Moses is indeed a fellow who's prone to anger. We find later on in the Exodus that he is so angry with the people of Israel that rather than speaking to the rock to give them water, he strikes it. And in doing so, God is displeased with Moses and he's actually forbidden from going into the promised land because of his anger. And so we might be inclined to look at this passage and go, geez, Moses was uh, a hot-headed fellow and he got angry here as well. Well, the Lord was not displeased with Moses in this instance. And so even though Moses was angry, he was displaying what we would call a righteous indignation. A anger that is justified because it is based upon the holiness and righteousness of God. There are certain things we should absolutely be angry about. We should be angry that abortion exists in our nation today. We should be angry that our nation is going down a godless direction. We should be angry that people who we know well don't want to be influenced by God, by His Word, by things that are indeed holy and true, but instead are influenced by the ways of the world. These are things we indeed should be angry about. But the most important thing that we must be angry about is when God and his word is besmirched, when God and his covenant is denied, when God and his ways are demeaned, looked down upon by God's own people. We must be the most angry, I believe, within the context of the church when people who are covenant members of God's community deny God and go down roads of false theology and false action, false love and false humility to go off of what Mike had us pray today. This happens within the church quite regularly. And God's covenant here is given to us as being broken by the people of God visually by Moses throwing the commandments down and breaking them, symbolizing 
the fact that already right away God's covenant has been broken by them, even though they said they would do all that God said. And yet in the church we find that many people within the context of the covenant community break God's covenant regularly and routinely. I can think of many people right off the top of my head in my own life that have gone down roads of sinful actions and sinful thinking, sinful theology, sinful works that have done much damage to the church, that have done much damage to the people of God and therefore have broken God's covenant and we should be rightly angry about that. We think of biblical passages like Peter himself violating the covenant when he is eating with Gentiles, celebrating, enjoying the fellowship of the covenant that he has with these people who formerly weren't the people of God. And then when some Jews come into the midst, he breaks fellowship with the covenant people who are Gentiles to go and to eat with the Jews, symbolizing the fact they are of greater influence, they are of more importance in Peter's mind, in Peter's life, than the Gentiles. And Paul rightly, angrily, I believe, rebukes Peter (coughs) 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 there publicly by saying, what are you doing by demonstrating that the covenant has two groups of people, Gentiles and Jews? And Peter, of course, repents and goes back to worshiping with Jews and Gentiles alike. So we should be rightly angry when the covenant is besmirched, when the covenant is acted or is not acted upon. We will come back to that thought here in a few moments. But as Moses breaks the commandments, the next thing he does is he goes to Aaron and he says to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Aaron's the one who's in charge. Aaron was the one who was in leadership while Moses and Joshua were up on the hill, up on the mountain. And so Moses asks him, what in the world did these people do to you? And it couldn't be more clear that they didn't actually have to do anything, but what was in the heart of Aaron was the fear of man. He was showing favoritism to the people who were right in front of him over Moses and God because he was afraid of the people who were right in front of him. The Bible makes it clear that we can't have the fear of man in our hearts. But the reality is, is we often do. It's very, very easy to fear the thing that's right in front of you to the exclusion of the thing that isn't there. I would be lying if I said I was immune to this similar kind of fault. There have been times for sure where I have not said probably more or probably not said the things I should have said because of the fear of somebody right in front of me. I remember a time where me and Brian were sitting after hours over at St. Augustine's. And you, you know how it was there. Sometimes we didn't lock the door immediately as soon as the service was over. 
And so a group of people came in that were clearly, um, how can I say, flamboyant in their expression of their lifestyles. <laughs> and they came in and there was uh, probably eight or nine of them, maybe more. No, it's probably about that many. And they came out of the front and they said, oh, well, there was two of them and they wanted to get married. There in that moment, they're like, you're a church, you're a pastor. We want you to marry this right now. And there in that moment, I certainly could have and perhaps should have gone to Romans 1 and demonstrated how that these two particular individuals, though they wanted to get married, were not in the position to get married because they were of the same sex. <clears throat> However, I pointed out that, number one, they didn't have a marriage license. <laughs> so therefore, I legally couldn't perform a marriage. Number two, that this isn't my church. We just rent it. And I think that this church would frown on me just going ahead <clears throat> and doing something like that there. Now, there certainly was in my mind a desire to not cause a big scene, to not say something that might cause one of these people to get angry, and in my mind thinking, I don't want them to smash one of the stained glass windows. <laughs> That's what my, where my mind went, oddly enough. <clears throat> and so, I didn't say the things that I probably should have said, they were fine with what I said and ended up leaving. And Brian called me on it and said, dude, why didn't you say more than what you did? And I'm like, well, I don't know. And I talked about these reasonings that I just did. And he obviously wasn't satisfied with the things that I said and realized there in that moment, <coughs> perhaps more than anything, it was the fear of man that kept me from saying the things that I probably should have said and probably should have called them to repentance instead of these other things. Now, having, maybe, um, having said that, I hear the words of Aaron here, <clears throat> and I'm grateful that my mind does not go this far in terms of my fear of man, that I'm willing to go set up a false idol and allow, not only allow, but actually ordain false worship of the true and living God. But I understand the fear of man nonetheless. It's something that we do need to repent of. It's something I repent of. It's something that I know that I have in myself. And so even though I am as at times bombastic and um, attacking as I am sometimes, I still do have this particular <coughs> sin that I can commit. But he goes further, like I said, than I would go. And he said, well, these people are evil, and you know how, heart, how their heart is set on false gods. And so they said, make for us gods. So I made them bring their gold <coughs> and threw it into the fire, and then out came this calf. And of course, we all laugh at Moses, or pardon me, Aaron's um, obfuscation, but we know that that's not what happened. We know that he fashioned something made out of wood 
and overlaid it with gold, particularly because of what it says earlier in the passage that I skipped over. Uh, He took the calf and burned it with fire. The wood burned, the gold was left. Moses ground that into powder and then scattered it in the brook that came down from the mountain and made the people drink of that water, thus drinking the gold and making that gold basically worthless. So Moses... brings the judgment upon these people. Really, God brings the judgment, but he brings it through Moses. And Aaron, even though Aaron had committed this great sin, certainly seems like, at least in the next passage, he is repentant. Now, it doesn't name him by name in the next part of this passage, but certainly, nonetheless... He's probably included. Moses, when he saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to their derision of their enemies, stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Probably Aaron is included in this particular group since all of them are there. Now he stands up and he says, Who is on the Lord's side? Here it says that they've broken loose, or it literally means that the people of Israel were out of control. And the derision of their enemies means that they had become a laughingstock. So they had broken loose. They had gone out of control in such a way that any enemy of Israel who would come and see what they were doing would have just laughed at them and laughed at God. So they basically were making a joke out of God and all his provision and everything that had been done for them. And the world just laughed. And the world laughs at the church today when we compromise, when we adopt their methods in order to try to worship the true and living God. People can smell it a mile away. And we can't compromise in such a way. Which is right what Aaron tried to do. Here's a calf, but it's Yahweh, right? Trying to compromise. Well, when we compromise in such a way, we become a laughingstock to the world around us. It's better to have them hate us than to laugh at us and to laugh at God. If they hate us, at least we know that they hated God too. And they hated Christ too. So Moses gathers all of the people to him. Now, I wonder here if the children of Levi hadn't given in to false worship. I wonder if they were grieved about it. Or I wonder if simply because Moses was, for all intents and purposes, the head of the tribe of Levi at this point, they were just simply unifying around their common clan leader i don't know it doesn't tell us but it does tell us that because they came to this decision of following god's way other than following their own way or the ways of the rest of the kingdom that they have been blessed by the lord and actually ordained to the service of the lord really interesting here that in the context of the covenant community of all of israel the ordination to the service the blessing upon them came about because of their 
need to discipline their erring brothers. And their discipline comes in the form of actually killing people. 3,000 people died at the hands of the Levites who were armed with their swords. God takes his sin, or God takes sin against his covenant very seriously. Now, we know that when Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 12, and he's speaking specifically about who our family members are, he says that our family is our covenant community that we're a part of even more than our natural relations. Verse 46, while Jesus was still speaking, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to them. <coughs> Pardon me, speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here, are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. The covenant community to Christ and to God is more important, takes precedent even over our natural relations within our physical families. Unfortunately, many a family has been torn asunder and separated because certain members are part of God's covenant community and certain members are not. And none of us are immune from this. <clears throat> we can sympathetically want to not cause trouble, not want to, you know, perhaps out of the fear of man that we already talked about, to maintain our family relationships and allow, consider, even permit sin, even permit actions, permit thoughts, permit false worship over and against the worship of the true and living God so that we have this family unity. And there are people I've known within the church who Unfortunately, their idol is their family. And I've seen them compromise Scripture in order that a son or a daughter, a father or a mother, an uncle or a grandparent or a cousin might not be offended, upset, and ostracized. And we can't we must stand for the truth of God's covenant to the exclusion of everybody and everything else. <clears throat> it is difficult to say, and it is difficult to sometimes accept this truth, but the reality is, is this is what Christ says. And we don't discipline the way Moses did, right? Like, I don't strap on a sword and... I have some of these knives from my dad's knife collection that might as well be a sword. <laughs> uh, I don't strap that on and march around, you know, looking for those with whom to discipline within the church. Now we have been given new instructions, in fact, very clear instructions 
for how church discipline is supposed to take place. And so we go about this pattern that Christ gives us in Matthew chapter 18 when we need to discipline within the context of the church. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him your fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that the charge, pardon me, that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them, in their midst, the old King James says. <coughs> Church discipline is to happen in this manner that Christ prescribes. Within the covenant community, you are going to sin. And when sin happens within the covenant community, we have to deal with sin. We have to deal with it. We must maintain the purity as much as we can of God's covenant community. Here, the very first time the covenant community is away from their physical leader, Moses, they immediately fall into sin. And sin is such a category that they're actually worshiping a calf and calling it God. Well, Aaron does. It doesn't seem like the rest of the people are calling it God. And so when they strap on their swords and go through the camp, they know probably the leaders of this rebellion, this covenantal rebellion, if we want to call it that. And those are probably the ones who have been dealt with by the sword. But we are to put up the sword. We are to be in our covenant community here, a people who deal with things, trusting that the Lord is in our midst as we do this, and as we do it in the way he has prescribed. So here's what happens when we sin in the covenant of community right now. If somebody were to sin, if I were to sin against Mike, Mike would come to me and tell me his sin between me and him alone. Now, in this context, the assumption is, is that he can't just let my sin go. There are some sins, right, that we just, a love covers a multitude of sins, right? So sometimes we can just let all kinds of things go. But when this is sin happens, and it's to the degree that we can't let it go, probably what's happened is there has been, or this is the way we should consider it, some kind of covenantal break. I can't, with a good conscience, come and worship corporately with you because of your sin against me. Right? So let me say that again. <clears throat> the way we should consider this first act being acted out is if the sin is so great between us that I walk in and I can't worship God because all I can think about is your sin against me. If that's how big it is, if that's how um, consuming it is in my mind, then I have to go to you, Mike has to come to me and tell me 
This is the sin that's happened. It's actually hindering me from worship. And I need this resolved so that I can worship. And now, hopefully, the sin is so great in your own mind that you can't worship either. Right? Because the idea is repentance. That's the goal. The goal isn't shame. That comes later. The goal is repentance. You know, I, I, this week, sinned against somebody. And I sinned because I exhibited an anger and aggression. I'll just tell you the story. I spilt water on my computer after prayer meeting and I was trying to hurry up and get stuff in my bag and I had my big bottle of water and I mistakenly knocked it and it went right on my computer. And so I grabbed my computer and I threw it onto my chair really quickly to hopefully it wouldn't be water. And I grabbed all my books on my desk, everything, and shoved it off of my desk. Now in my mind, I'm like, I just don't want everything to get wet. But the person who was in the room with me took it as I was super angry that I had done that. And then I'm embarrassed because I'd just done this in front of them and they're trying to help me clean up and I say, dude, I don't want your help. Stop helping me. And I shooed them out of there. And they went away, dog between, tail between their legs, and went out of there. And I cleaned everything up, and then I calmed down, and I realized after the fact, man, I, that was not okay. I was harsh to this person, and I treated them in a way that I could see. I don't want to go listen to him preach <laughs> Sunday morning. <laughs> And so I had to go to that person and repent. We should be quick to repent. We should love repentance. Sometimes it's hard because we are embarrassed. Like I said, I was, I was embarrassed in that moment. And so that embarrassment welled up within me and made me honestly at a moment's thought, I don't want to go make things right. But the reality is, is I needed to. And the covenant relationship that I had with this individual was more important than my embarrassment, than my anger, than my sin in the moment. <coughs> the next thing is, if that person doesn't receive it, if Mike comes to me and tells me I sinned against him and I don't receive it from Mike, he'll go away and he'll pray. Lord, what do you want me to do from here? Lord, is it something I do need to let go? And it, it doesn't leave his mind, he still is compelled. Then he brings somebody with him, two or three people. And of course the understanding is, is that this way there's more pressure upon me, but also perhaps he was wrong in the matter and they're going to be able to say to him, hey, you're being a little sensitive there. In both ways it protects the covenant community bringing other people in at this particular point. But I am in sin and I don't even hear these two or three people <coughs> then the next step is indeed public and it is indeed something that will bring about shame. And we immediately, especially in our modern culture, think shame is inherently always completely categorically wrong and bad. We should never shame someone. No, we absolutely should. And there is absolutely biblically a time and a place for it. If the sin is such 
that the breakdown of the covenant community is taking place. Now there's not just one or two people involved. Now there's multiple people involved. That means multiple people are coming together and they have a conscience that they're not worshiping rightly because there's sin in the camp. So therefore the sin needs to be made public and needs to be pointed out. I'm pretty sure there was some shame going on when Aaron... Moses and the rest of the Levites put on swords and went through the camp and killed people. This brought shame to, I mean, we're still seeing shame on them for this in this day and in our day and age. If the sin gets touched to a point where it's public and the person doesn't even listen to the public call for repentance from the church, then they're to be excommunicated and cast out of the covenant community. The idea is, if they're unrepentant, how could they be Christians? Because Christians repent. So in our day and age, this is the way we deal with church discipline. This is the way we deal with matters in the camp that have fractured the covenant bonds. Moses comes down from the mountain, he sees what's taking place, and he takes those Ten Commandments and he breaks them, symbolizing the fact the covenant has been broken by you people. And you need to repent of this. In Zechariah chapter 11, verse 9, it says, I will not be your shepherd. Pardon me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die? Let it die. What is to be destroyed? Let it be destroyed. Let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. So I took my staff, uh, I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made <coughs> with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. God has regularly, throughout his history, when his covenant is broken, displayed it publicly by actions. Moses breaking the Ten Commandments, Zechariah breaking his shepherd's staff, saying this community, Israel, has no shepherd over them anymore. And we too, as a covenant community, must publicly call into question when somebody is jeopardizing our fellowship together, we must call sin, sin, and we must deal with it adequately, at least how Scripture teaches, how Christ teaches us to. Now, the good thing is this isn't the end, though. <clears throat> now, Moses, after bringing discipline about within the people of God, goes up onto the mountain and he says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned and it is a great sin. They made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. That's an amazing love. <laughs> And be very easy to look at Moses and all of his actions here and not see a heart of love for these people. To say, well, he's just a hot-headed jerk. 
I mean, look what he's doing. <laughs> he's getting people to strap on swords and killing people within the camp. But yet we find <coughs> that his love really is for the people. And these few people that had snuck into the camp or had made their way into the camp that were not genuinely part of the covenant are dealt with. And now God, or pardon me, Moses goes to God and asks for forgiveness for the people. And he loves them. He loves them enough that he's willing to say, Lord, please forgive them. But if you don't, don't forgive me either. Paul says a similar thing in Romans chapter 3 when he says, I I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. It's a mighty love to love somebody enough to be able to say that. I'd be hard-pressed, honestly, to go before the Lord and echo a prayer like this. It would have to be <coughs> it would have to be something that I believe is supernaturally empowered by the Spirit. And Paul had a great love for the Israelites, so much so that he would call himself to be accursed. Moses had a great love for his people, so much so he would call himself to be accursed. And even though I struggle with this, Christ didn't. Christ said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. For greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. There's no greater love. <clears throat> Christ says there's no greater love than for someone to lay down his life for his friends. And Moses exhibits that here. This great love he has for the nation, for the people. Paul had this great love for his own covenant people. And Christ does as well. Christ comes and he, in a fashion that Moses couldn't, in a fashion that Paul couldn't, actually does come and partake of our own sin. In the sense that he receives the wrath that we deserve. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians that God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus in John chapter 17, this high priestly prayer, this is right moments before he goes down into the garden and is arrested and carried away and to be tried and just hours before his crucifixion. This is what he prays. He says, I'm praying not for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep 
them in your name, which you've given me, that they be one, even as we are one. For I do not ask for those only, but for all who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world (coughs) may believe that you sent me. The glory you've given me, I've given to them, that even as we are one, they may be one. And in I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you have loved me. Moses here typifies, he points forward to the great atonement that we have in Jesus Christ. We have this mediator who goes before the people and on their behalf goes to God and says, please forgive them. And God answers them and says, I won't blot them out. Instead, go down and take care of them. Take them to the place that I've commanded. Those who've sinned, I'll deal with. But here he goes before the Lord and he says, please, Lord, Don't blot them out out of his great love. And Christ prays for us. And he says that those who believe in the words of the apostles, that's us. We've never seen Christ. But we've heard from the words of the apostles here in our Bibles that Christ died for us and loves us. And he prays here that our unity with Christ would be such that we are unified with the Father as well. This is why covenant faithfulness is so necessary. This is why we take church discipline seriously. This is why we take holiness seriously. This is why we take our own sin seriously and why we love repentance. Because we are united with God through Jesus Christ. Because we have been saved by Him. Our forgiveness is complete. In Romans chapter 4, Paul writes in this wonderful passage, To him who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed is the one whom the Lord doesn't count his sin. The sin against God here was great. And it's dealt with appropriately. And then God, through Moses' intercession, forgives the people And we know that all this points forward to the work Christ is going to do. That these people couldn't be forgiven here if Christ wasn't in the future going to atone for sins <clears throat> of the very people that are being forgiven back here. And if this is true for them, how much more true is it for us looking back on Christ's accomplished and finished work? To close, 
Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says about the Thessalonians that the, the other churches report concerning the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Beloved, we've turned to Christ and received Him as our Lord and Savior. We've decided to serve the living and true God. We're following after His ways. We're determined to do it. Setting aside our idols. Waiting for Jesus Christ to come from heaven. Because He delivers us from the wrath to come. Beloved, there is a wrath coming. There is a judgment coming. And we must be about the business of not only telling the world that there's a wrath coming and calling them to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, but ourselves resting and trusting in Him. Regularly, daily, looking to Jesus Christ and allowing Him to form us, fill us, and fit us for that great day where we get to be with him in his heaven. He's the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. He is the one who forgives our sins. He is the one who has given us all things that we need for righteousness, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. So like Moses was this intercessor for the people of God, we find in Jesus Christ the perfect intercession, the perfect mediator, that we need in order to have our own sins forgiven. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of the gospel of your Son, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the blessing of finding our forgiveness in you. Lord, oh, it, it, it's, it, it's something that should be the banner over all of our lives, and we don't want to neglect... <coughs> We don't want to mistreat it. We don't want to avoid it. We don't want to be alienated from it. But Lord, we want the gospel to be the very thing that forms our thinking, our lives, to be the very thing, Lord, that inspires us to live in the way we should live, the way we should love, the way we should treat others, the way we should treat ourselves. Lord, we love you because you indeed first loved us. And like you have promised through Moses that you would forgive the sins of your people and not blot them out of your book, we praise you that you've forgiven our sins and you have not blotted us out of your book. That you have not withheld redemption from us. Lord, we love you and we praise you for your grace and your mercy. In your name, amen.